Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Over the past few weeks, have constantly springboarded from uh, the scriptures in Timothy and in Peter uh, concerning the aspects of adornment and apparel. And so we're continuing. If you remember last week, we spoke uh, much concerning uh, adornment. And we kind of got to the, the crossroads, and I felt like I couldn't go on because there wasn't enough time, really, to say what needed to be said. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the, the distinction of the sexes, that apparel has more to do than just with modesty within uh, the, the, the sexes, but also a distinction. It helps them with the distinction of the sexes, even according to the word of the Lord. And uh, some might say, well, Brother McGee, you know, you're talking about Old Testament times, said, uh, you know, a lot of people wore robes. Yes, but even historically and culturally, the robes were distinct in ways and fashions of style and color and markings and different cuts and trims of the robes, even their length, uh, to distinguish, again, many times, even what a person wore then, distinguish, even today, distinguish what their occupation was, uh, how they, they functioned within society, but even uh, distinguishing male and female. You would even imagine that. And just a case in point on this, understanding how just even a robe could distinguish a male and female, I want to turn your attention to Genesis chapter 24 and verse number 65. Uh, this is the story of Rebecca that's being brought back to Isaac. You'll remember that Abraham had his eldest servant to go out and find a bride for his, for his uh, son. And Genesis 24 is quite a lengthy chapter, and it's all about that servant of Abraham finding a bride for his, bride for his son, and he found one by the name of Rebecca. And so Abraham's servant is now bringing Rebecca back to Isaac. And notice verse 65. This is quite interesting. For she said, she's speaking into the servant, this is Rebecca. For she said unto the servant, what, everybody notice this, what man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, and he goes on to tell her that this is Isaac. So they are still yet at some distance from Isaac, but she at a distance says, what man? She could distinguish even through a robe, by a robe, that this was a man and not a woman. That was approaching in the field. She says, what man is that that approaches us? Now, there's something we must understand. We're going to go to an Old Testament scripture. You can already go there. Deuteronomy 22 and verse number 5. Old Testament scripture. Amen. And uh, all scripture is profitable for doctrine. New Testament scripture tells us that. All scripture. It's not like the New Testament is more important than the Old Testament or vice versa. All right. All scripture is profitable for doctrine and reproof. All right, all these type of things. And so there is something that you must realize in Old Testament scripture in particular, in particular. And that is there are certain things mentioned in the Old Testament that are spoken as an abomination. And even getting a little bit more detailed, there are certain things in the Old Testament scripture that are spoken as an abomination unto Israel or the nation of Israel. And... There are certain things that are spoken as an abomination unto God. So some things were abomination unto a, a, a sect of people of Israelites. But there were other things under the category that was abomination unto God. For instance, whenever we look in the Old Testament scripture, uh, some of the things as far as being an abomination unto Israel, there were certain laws about having railings around the roof of their house. That was abomination unto Israel. Israel. Another abomination unto Israel was uh, they were not to mix seed. They were not to uh, mix uh, animals as far as, as, far as in uh, reproduction. They were not to mix um, materials, wool with linen or things of that nature. That was abomination unto Israel. 
But some of the things that were an abomination unto God were these. You can find several of these in Deuteronomy, some of these even in Proverbs. But things that were abomination unto the Lord was prostitution or homosexuality, uh, idolatry, movement, involvement rather in the occult. Uh, abomination to the Lord was when one would cheat others. Uh, abomination to the Lord was when uh, offering blemish sacrifices to God. Uh, things that were abomination unto the Lord was perversion, a liar that was not telling the truth, a proud person, a murder was abomination unto the Lord. A heart that plans to do evil and is constantly engaged in evil, that was abomination unto the Lord. One who creates division among the brethren, that was abomination unto the Lord. Uh, the lifestyle of a wicked person or one who excuses sin and condemns righteousness, that was an abomination unto the Lord. And in our Deuteronomy 22 and verse number 5, it tells us that a woman wearing that which pertains to a man or a man in woman's garment was also an abomination unto the Lord. No, in this instance, it's not just abomination to Israel, a nation, a particular group of people. It was abomination unto the Lord. The meaning of the word abomination means that it is abhorrent or detestable unto God. And the thing with abominations, particularly those that are abominations unto the Lord, what was an abomination to the Lord then is an abomination to the Lord now. It changes not. He changes not. Amen. What was detestable then is detestable now. What was uh, uh, abhorrent then is abhorrent now. So those things that even I made mention to you concerning that were abomination unto the Lord, uh, lying and murder and, 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 and cheating, all those are still abominations unto the Lord even still yet today. And so even in this, we understand then, even with Deuteronomy 22 and verse number 5, that the Lord is, is, is prescribing then for male and females, men and women, uh, this distinction then of their sexes, even through their, their appearance and through their dress. And so as, as distinctions in the sexes, the Lord has brought several things into the scripture, uh, our behavior, our deportment, our, our roles and relationships, uh, and the manner in which we present ourselves, even in our physical appearance. Again, uh, it's reflected in our appearance. I'll read Deuteronomy 22 and 5. It's been up there for you. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth. The word pertaineth has a Latin root. It means shall not wear that which reacheth toward unto a man. It furthers defines to relate, have reference to, be appropriate for, belong to as an accessory, attribute, feature, or function unto a man. That's a mouthful, isn't it? That's what all the word pertaineth a man means. Shall not wear that which pertaineth a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord. The moment that we would involve ourselves in this, we become detestable and a horror in the sight of God. Amen. And so some have tried to assert perhaps that, you know, Old Testament scripture, again, all scripture is profitable uh, for doctrine. Uh, but something that we must realize concerning this, this is an abomination to the Lord. This is not, in the Old Testament scripture, you had civil laws, you had moral laws, you had ceremonial laws, right? Civil laws were for like the day-to-day -day activities. You had uh, ceremonial laws in the Old Testament that was for the way maybe something ought to be sacrificed or what should be brought. It was all very ceremonial and all of those things were fulfilled in the man Christ Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice, all right? But when we talk about moral law, there's, it doesn't die off somewhere. The moral law still stands. The moral law is still stands. It never changes. It is still functioning yet today. And so the Lord from the very, can I even say this? The Lord even from the very beginning has caused a distinction of the sexes. Because consider with me for a moment. Uh, uh, before the fall in Eden, before the transgression in the garden, when Adam and Eve were naked, and not ashamed. See, if there had never been the transgression, there had been a whole lot of things that would be different. In honesty. If, if, if the perfection of paradise could remain as it were, were you know, uh, women would not have the pain in childbearing. 
Not by the sweat of a man's brow would he bring forth uh, vegetation from the ground. There'd be a lot of things different. So before the fall, before transgression, man and woman was naked and not ashamed. And even at that very original point, God had provided anatomically differences between male. Well, we know that, Brother McGee. Well, before the fall, there was no necessary. It was unnecessary for clothing. And he had a distinguishment. And so after the fall, whenever clothing was necessary, then he brought them clothed as with skins, as we've already looked at in previous weeks. And evidently through the scripture, we can understand that he still, he still indicates and underscores a distinction between male and female and God's moral law that which is an abomination to him never changes someone say well brother McGee I read there in the Bible that you know David cut off a portion of Saul's skirt well you know read all over and in the margins outside the skirt of the garment is not talking about a skirt like you and women wear today the skirt was the, the border or the bottom or the hem of a robe or a garment, particularly even more so the corners of the garment. All right? And so we got to take everything in its setting and in, our, you know, in its context. All right? And so whenever we start to think about this, let's, you, let's just use even modern day or throughout history cliches. What does it mean whenever someone asks, who wears the pants in the family? Where's the, who wears the pants in the family? In the scripture, the word is breeches, B-R-E-E-C-H-E-S, breeches. It was an article of clothing that was for the priest who were all, according to scripture, and only to be, were all males. Amen. And whenever the word breeches appears in the scripture, it refers exclusively to for men's apparel. Breaches for the priest, for that matter, was even wore underneath their robe. And with good, with good measure, because the Lord said, when are they go all up to offer up the sacrifices on the altar? The reason why, and you see this sometimes depicted in Scripture, that it was a ramp and not steps. He said so that their nakedness would not be revealed. You got on breeches in a robe, and the Lord has that going up to the altar being a ramp rather than steps because he doesn't want your nakedness to be. I think that tells me a lot about how much should be shown. Amen. Is everybody doing okay? Amen. So they were under the robe. The word, we get our word britches, B-R-I-T-C-H, and our word pants from the word. It's etymologically derives from the word breaches that is in the word of God found in the Hebrew language. Amen. And so according to the Hebrew dictionaries, breaches means trousers that extend to the knee, below the knee, and to the ankles. So whenever we talk about scripture, distinction, you'll find that whenever the Bible talks about girding up their loins, and it's not speaking figurative language like girding up the loins of your mind, but when it speaks about girding up loins, which would bring a portion of your robe between your legs to, to pull it up, to be able to run or move quicker, to be unhindered in a fast pace, girding up the loins in Scripture was typically, or I say typically, was used strictly for men. You never see in Scripture where a woman is, is commanded or spoken of as girding up her loins was only the men that was ever commanded of girding up their loins. That's the only place there would ever be a division in the legs was for the man, not the woman. You can read in Job, you got this for me. I don't know who's up there. Brother Zach, oh yeah, you're back, Brother Zach. <laughs> Job chapter 30. I haven't forgotten you, brother. I really haven't. Job chapter number 38 and verse number three, if you can get there for me. Just as Job, here in the book of Job, it says, gird up now thy loins like a man. 
For I will demand of thee and answer thou me. He says also in chapter 40 and verse number 7, he, or he emphasizes, again, gird up thy loins now like a man. And I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. And so throughout history, uh, societies that were based upon the Judo-Christian uh, uh, Old and New Testament ethics accepted that, that pants were men's apparel and dresses and skirts were women's apparel. Even still yet today, although society has chosen different paths and different routes, you find, don't you, on a woman's bathroom that doesn't have writing, some little stick image with a skirt or dress on and men have the divided leg still yet today you would probably think someone is trying to pull something over on you if both of them had split legged on the door which one would you go into <laughs> they doubled up on this <laughs> a lot of men work here amen all right and so uh, pagan societies, we can't use pagan societies as an example. We use the society of the Hebrew people, the ones that the Lord had chosen as his special treasure. Because in many pagan societies, uh, for that matter, clothing was quite minimal, uh, sometimes just completely unclothed in pagan societies. It wasn't until, just a little history, it wasn't until World War II that women began wearing pants. It wasn't until World War II. Uh, we went to war and ladies went to the factories. They started doing a lot of the jobs that men had normally done. They left the, the uh, spa to be in the caretaker of the home and of the family and went to work in the factories. And they entered the labor force in mass and they began to wear then pants then in the factories, in the workshops. But until then, it was pretty well just obsolete. Consider this, for the first 5,900 years, for the first 5,900 years of human history, only men wore pants. From uh, an article or book, rather, my favorite fashion icons, Anne Paxson, published in 2001, she says, by today's standards, women wearing pants is considered part of the culture. I got to pause there. By today's standards, women wearing pants is considered part of the culture. What did Peter say in the book of Peter and other places concerning where he was living? He said, I'm a pilgrim and I'm a stranger. What did Jesus even quote? I'm, we're in the world. We're not of it. There's a culture that I live in, but there's a culture that I live by. Abraham said, I'm looking for a city and a country whose builder and maker is God. She goes on to say, but in the early 1930s, it was not only a fashion no-no, but also considered an immoral act, that is to wear pants as a woman. Catherine Hepburn set the standard by not caring about what society thought, not making an issue of her lifestyle. It was rumored that MGM was so determined to put Catherine in dresses that they had someone steal her pants out of her dressing room while she was on the set. She said, but it says instead of panicking, she simply walked around in her underwear until her pants were returned to her. Listen, if you go back in the history of the denominations, Christian denominations of America, if you continue going back into history, there was a point in time originally that all Christian denominations denounced the wearing of pants. They also denounced drinking alcohol and smoking. A lot of other things they denounce that as apostolics trying to abide by the apostles' doctrine, we still keep. Amen. But over time, even in Christian denominations, what was formerly off bounds became tolerated. And I might even say toleration moved into a mode of acceptance. 
If you ever wonder sometimes why we try to be careful around here is because what you tolerate in one generation, the next generation will accept. Now, again, folks, all of this, all of this, when I'm talking to you about all this, we're we're talking about sanctification, right? I've said earlier in this series, salvation is one of the most elastic words uh, in Scripture. Uh, because whenever we first come to the Lord, we are saved, we are justified, we are saved from the penalty of sin. The Bible says we're not saved by works, lest any man should boast. It's the gift of God. But it goes on to say there in Ephesians 2 and verse number 10, and we are his workmanship, meaning his masterpiece, and that we are saved unto good works. So that where good works don't save us, the Lord has reserved good works for us after we've been saved which is all a part of our sanctification process. And where we come to sanctification, sanctification is where we are saved from the power of sin. How we live our everyday lives and we mature in that. Hopefully then that we get to the end of life someday, either by death or by the trumpet sounding, and we have salvation again through glorification and we are saved from the presence of sin. So salvation has stages in reality. We're saved, first of all, justified. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We're sanctified in our maturity. We're saved from, if you will, uh, the power of sin. And then in the end, when we're raptured someday, we're saved from the presence of sin. Amen. Amen. And so we're in that maturity process right now. Femininity by Susan Brown Miller in 1984 Noted feminist Susan Brown Miller writes, femininity in essence is a romantic sentiment, a nostalgic tradition of imposed limitations, she says. She implies that women who adapt a feminine, I'll get out my mouth, style, are trapped. As part of her personal revolt against femininity, she states that she stopped wearing dresses and skirts altogether. For what purpose? To revolt against femininity. Her writings strongly advocate that women who want to be set free from traditional femininity should discard their skirts and dresses. In other words, if you don't want to be identified with the feminine side of humanity, then discard your skirt and your dresses. Why? Because, again, Scripture even clues us in that it brings distinction. Amen. To the sexes of male and female. Amen. Amen. So if we start to wear that which pertaineth to a man or a man puts on a woman's apparel, then we begin to blur the lines of distinction between the sexes. Amen. It removes the individual in reality from his or her rightful place in God as a man or as a woman. Amen. Let's go on just a little further. Uh, I'm going to be going to Jude Uh, chapter number one and verse number eight. And so, again, any of these topics, uh, again, I am still just hitting the tops of the trees on these. I know you might think he's not, but I am. Uh, We have other resources and information if anybody wants to delve deeper in this. I know at one time on Thursday nights, my wife did a three-part series, I believe, on holiness. Uh, We, we, uh, Bishop, I think years ago, used to do, what, 11? Maybe 11, was it 11 weeks or so? Anyway, on holiness, we still have some of those archives. Uh, if anybody is interested, amen. I, I, 10 years ago, I looked it up this morning. 10 years ago, I did a two-part series just on 1 Corinthians 11 that has to do concerning the hair. And so we have other resources out there that delve a little deeper on uh, these particular subjects and these particular matters. But I want to go on this morning and talk just a little bit about painting the face or the body. both in the Bible and in pre-World War I history. They used colorful makeup, and it was associated with brazenness, forwardness, seduction, and prostitution. Um, scripture, Scripture, even in the Word of God, whenever it refers to the painting of the face or things of that matter, it's always a reference to uh, ungodly or backslidden condition of a nation, a person, or a people. It is never in Scripture associated with a godly woman. Never. Bar none. And the, the, 
the Bible, and I'll read it to you, and then let me go back here just a moment. Jude chapter number one, verse number eight. The Bible says, likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile. That's a word you just hold on to, the flesh. Despise dominion and speak evil. Speak evil of dignities. It says they, these, these people, they defile, they defile the flesh. Greek, Greek scholar Marvin Trees tells us that both Peter and Jude, and that's what I just read from you at Jude, quote extensively from the book of Enoch in their epistle, uh, a Hebrew copy of this particular book, the book of Enoch, dates back to 300 years before Christ Jesus, and uh, it had been found in Israel. They had come back across it, and it is extra-biblical literature, it is not the Bible, but, and it's not inspired. But both Peter and Jude reference it. Both of these apostles reference it in the New Testament Scripture and quote from it. And then it must have some type of gravity of importance and, and legitimacy for them to quote from it. And so whenever they take Jude chapter number 1 and verse number 8, quoting from that, likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh. Literally, it means they paint the flesh this 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 resource that they had uh, Enoch recorded that it was the fallen angels who originally taught men to create weapons in order to destroy men and taught women to produce makeup and paint their faces also for the purpose of destroying men Again, we looked at Jezebel in past weeks, how she teared her head and she painted her face when Jehu was coming because she wanted to have sway, right, over Jehu as he approached her. And so Mr. Marvin Treese, who is a Greek scholar, teaches that Jude is referring to this, and that is why he uses the word in the Greek here, meaning to dye with another color to stain, that word defile. It's the only way that it's used like this in Jude chapter number 8. Amen. Again, they were using this to get an upper hand on men. All right. Amen. Furthermore, the Bible says that God hates a proud look or a look of vanity. Amen. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 6, verse number 16 and 17, that there are six things that the Lord doth hate, and yea, seven are a, an abomination unto him. And among them listed is a proud look or a look of vanity. God, even in the Old Testament scripture, he pronounced judgment upon backslidden Jerusalem and Samaria. Samaria and whenever he uh, spoke judgment upon them, uh, he likened them to lewd women who tried to beautify themselves, and I put beautify in quotes, painting their face and putting ornaments of gold in order to attract their lovers. The Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 23, verse number 37, this is the story of it. And the Lord, moreover, the Lord said, moreover unto me, son of man, wilt thou judge Ahola, which was Samaria, and Aholaba, Jerusalem, which was Jerusalem, yea, declare unto them their abominations. And at the word abominations in here again, that they have committed adultery and blood is in their hands. And with their idols have they committed adultery. I'm skipping down a little bit, Brother Zach. And furthermore, that ye have sent for men to come from far unto whom a messenger was sent. And lo, they came for whom thou didst wash thyself, painest thy eyes and deckest thyself with ornaments. And I'm skipping a little bit. And with the men of the common sort were brought skipping a little bit, which put bracelets upon their hands and beautiful crowns upon their heads. They said, I unto her that that was old in adulteries. Will they now commit whoredoms with her and she with them? Yet they went in unto her as they go into a woman that playeth the harlot. So went they into Ahola and Aholiba, the lewd women. Skipping down verse 48, he continues, says, Thus will I cause lewdness to seize out of the land, that all women may be taught not to do after your lewdness. And so in the descriptions of them painting themselves and the bracelet of that, he says, this is what you have done uh, to be a whoremonger, basically among men, among the people, and says, I've done all this unto you to teach people not to be like this. All right? 
teach people not to be like this, even as he did with Jezebel that he mentioned earlier. The prophet Jeremiah also speaks of pain in the face in Jeremiah 4 and verse 30. And when thou art spoiled, what wilt thou do? Thou that closest thyself with crimson, though thou deckest thee with ornaments of gold, though thou rentest thy face with painting, in vain shalt thou make thyself fair. Thy lovers will despise thee. They will seek thy life. According to uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica, the use of colorful makeup to enhance a woman's sensuality first appeared in Egypt about 3500 B.C., and that is true. You want to look, look up today. Just go home, look up uh, e- just Egypt or, or, or Egyptian makeup, and you'll find uh, st- statutes or relief paintings all the way back then of great black hue around the eyes all the way years ago that it found its, its appearance in Egypt many, many years ago. And in Scripture, of course, with Egypt and Jerusalem or Egypt and Israel, what was God always wanting them to do? Come out of Egypt. Don't lean on Egypt. Don't practice the ways of Egypt, right? But come apart to be my people. The early church fathers, even, you know, Augustine and Eusebius, some of these people that are early, what even modern society beyond apostolics call church fathers, they forbid, they forbade the use of makeup even in their writings, if you read of it. Great preachers of, of revivals of time past, not within the apostolic faith, but outside of other denominations, 18th and 19th century, both in England and America, they always condemned cosmetics and makeup. In the 18th and 19th century. In, in Great Britain, laws were passed by Parliament in the 1700s and 1800s against makeup. Until World War I, again, makeup was considered immoral by societies, even non-Christian individuals. And so when World War I came, the barrier against it began to be lowered and eventually discarded then the use of it after World War II was just open game. Again, you almost see then a tolerance, then acceptance from one war to the next war. And every Christian denomination across the board opposed it and taught not for it, but against it historically. For that matter, the pain in the face kind of, I say kind of, I hate when I do that. It goes against even scripture that we read in Peter and in Timothy about shamefacedness in both adornment and apparel, to be blanched face. All right? Everybody doing okay? Man, we might be able to knock this out. You want to run? Let's talk about hair. Let's talk about hair. Paul begins a discourse in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 and verse number 2. And I'll begin reading. And please look what Paul starts out here with his discourse. He's admonishing uh, the church at Corinth to remember and keep the ordinances that he delivers unto them. He says, now I praise you, brethren, verse number two, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. When we're speaking of head there, we're talking about authority. All right. Authority, that the authority, the authority of every man is Christ. The authority of every woman is man and the authority of Christ. When I speak of Christ, I'm speaking about humanity. The head of humanity is, is God, divinity. That really goes for all people. The authority for all of humanity is God, is divinity. Every man praying to prophesy and having his head covered dishonoreth his head. Now, we're speaking about two different things here in chapter number four. When we're talking about having his head covered, we're talking about literal, natural head. But when it says it dishonoreth his head, we're talking about his spiritual head. Every man that prayeth for prophesy of having his literal head covered dishonoreth his spiritual head, which is Christ. But every woman that prayeth and prophesieth, I tell you what, I might have to go get hooked on phonics after this is all said and done. <laughs> with her head uncovered, her literal head, dishonoreth her head, her spiritual head. For that is even all as if she were shaven. For if a woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed not to cover his head for as much. Here's the reason. For as much as he is the image and glory of God. And so a man with his head covered, all right, particularly with long hair, 
uh, is covering up his head or his authority because he is the image and the glory of God. Man with short head, short hair, <laughs> might have a short head too. Maybe it's kind of squatty. I don't know. You know, rather than oblong. But a man with short hair, then by having short hair, is giving glory unto God and showing forth himself as being made in the image of God. And the only image of God there ever was was the man Christ Jesus. Amen. But the woman says is the glory of man. So her head literally should be covered because if her head is covered then she is concealing the glory that she is the glory of man what does God want in all this by a woman having long hair and a man having short hair man's glory is concealed but God's glory is known if you get it backwards, you are giving glory to man and concealing the glory of God. And God doesn't share his glory with no one. So it's all about glory. It's all about honor. Who's getting the glory and who gets the honor? For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. There in verse number eight. Amen. The man is not the woman, the woman of man, right? All the way back to creation, that there was a rib taken from Adam's side. Amen. And he created woman. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman was created for man. The only thing that God saw that was not good in creation, that man was alone. Right? And he made himself a helpmate or somebody that was suitable for him. Right? And for the purpose of procreation throughout the earth. Right? God made a woman for him that would be suitable to him. Folks, I've said this before, and I'm not trying to get graphic. I'm not trying to get graphic. But if you go out with plumbing, you go out with electrical, there's male and female ends. You can't get two female ends to fit together. Neither can you get two male ends. But the suitable part for the connection is male and female all the way even in the atomics of our bodies. God made a woman for man. If he had made a man for a man, there would be no other men or women. You don't exist. If there's not a distinction in the sexes. Biologically, reproductively. For this cause, ought the woman, verse 10, ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. We could go in and talk a lot about that. But again, I'm trying to hit the tops of the trees. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man, in the Lord. For one, again, originally the woman came from the rib of man in the beginning, but through childbearing, all men and women are brought into the world. So the man is not without the woman, neither the woman without the man, according to the word of the Lord. For as the woman is of man, even so is the man also by the woman. Again, the childbearing aspect of a woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves. Is it commonly that a woman praying to God uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you? And I'm not even talking about bathroom doors right here. But a man, because of the hormone of testosterone in his body, and I know there is also, uh, you know, genetics on some of that, but if he had strong genetics but had a, in, uh, a hormonal imbalance of the testosterone that belongs to a male, it is proper that just through natural causes of that hormone later in life, men typically begin to go bald. Women do not. If they do, it's usually because of some type of in, uh, a hormonal or some type of other cause that's causing that to happen. What's nature doing? It's teaching us. That does not even nature teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. Well, Brother McGee, 
So if she has long hair, she covers up man's glory. And for him to have short hair, that reveals God's glory. But her long hair is a glory to her and what's going on. Why do you think that the Lord is very particular in Timothy and Peter that we've already read then about what a woman does to her hair and with her hair? As far as adornment, embroidery in gold and silver and pearls. Because there needs to be no glory given to it beyond what that which God has given it. Amen. For her hair is given for a covering. But if any man seemed to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Amen? And so when we look at these words of, of cover or covering from verse 2 to verse 16, in verse number 4, when it uses the word covered, it is used as a preposition. When we read of it in verses 5, 6, 7, and 13, it is used as a verb. All right? Not a person, place, or thing. It's only in verse 15 that it's spoken of as a noun, the word covered. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. And it states very plainly the purpose of that noun, that thing, that covering, is not a veil, it's her long hair. Amen. It is her long hair. Well, Brother McGee, it's if they were to go in praying before the Lord that the man should be uncovered. If they pray or prophesied that she should have covered hair. So this only really pertains if they're praying. If they're going to go pray, then the man needs to get a haircut. And if they're not, then the woman needs to keep the sears out of her hair uncut. Wrong. For that matter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17 admonishes us that we should always be praying without sin. And so in that constant attitude and spirit of prayer, we need as men to be uncovered, ladies covered. Everybody doing all right? Amen. And so when we look at the scriptures... There is, again, a relationship to authority, submission, angelic beings, nature, disgrace, glory, all of this tied up in this concept of the hair, right? Um, the, the Talmud, which is some Jewish writing, states that the hairstyle of the men of that New Testament day was Julian, meaning Caesar-like. And that priests cut their hair once every 30 days. It's based upon Ezekiel 44 and verse 20. If you go home today, look up Julius Caesar, a bust or a picture. You're going to find him with short cut hair. Can you get Ezekiel 44 and verse 20? Priests would cut their hair for 30 days. How often do you get a haircut? I'm just saying. 30 days or a little longer sometimes, you know, somewhere in there. About a month. As we grow older, it kind of gets less. But the places where there is hair, it still shoots out. <sighs> Neither shall they shave their heads nor suffer their locks to grow long. They shall only pull their heads. That is the cutting of their hair of the priest. It, it's hard to find uh, for Israelites. It's hard to find images of Israelites or depictions of Israelites. Uh, in part because, again, they have that do not make any graven image type of thing. Old Testament law. Because it was so... Um, God was so adamant that if they were even to start do something like that, that they might be tempted to do something like into animal or beast and fall down to worship. So rather than trying to draw a line or say, well, you can do this, but not that. So just no image, no image making at all. Right. And again, that's the reason why sometimes we just got to just draw a line all the way across. Because then you get in the notions, well, how long or how short, how but nonetheless, so it's hard to find images of the Israelites because they did not make graven images. But archaeologists have come across uh, images. One was found in northern Israel, and it was of some Philistines that had enslaved the Israelites. And the Philistines, they threw out, they did do image carving and stuff like that. Images of them were typically long hair, and a lot of them had beards. But also, whenever they were enslaving the Israelites, there was a depiction then that the Israelites were their slaves because the Philistines had their long hair and the people that they enslaved had their short hair. Amen. Everybody know, okay? I'm trying to keep track of time. I think, I think we can do it. Is everybody, is everybody here with me till we're done? I'm serious. We, we can, I think we might be able to wrap this up. Look, if you will, understand the short and long discussion in the scripture of 1 Corinthians 11, the word shorn is used. That means to shear, to cut, to sever. 
The word shaven also is used to shave or to use a razor. So we're still talking about cutting of hair when you're talking about shave or when you talk about shorn. All right. If the hair's been trimmed, it's been cut. I remember years ago, man, stuff that would come across the plane. I didn't use scissors, but people used fingernail clippers to cut off dead ends because they thought it was a loophole to get by the Bible. I'm telling you honest God's truth. I'm not cutting my hair. I'm clipping my hair. It's still severed. All right. Amen. God says if it's been cut or if it's been trimmed, then it's the same as though it has had a razor laid to it and it's been completely shaven and shorn off. Long hair then, on the other side, long hair, in the Greek it's coma or comb, K-O-M-A or K-O-M-E. Long hair, when it speaks of long hair, it's basically this, uncut or let the hair grow. So long hair is uncut hair. Short hair is hair that has been cut. What I'm saying is you can have hair down to your knees. But if you trim your hair, you got short hair. You can have hair up to your shoulders. But if by nature your body doesn't allow it to grow any further than that, you got long hair, according to the word of the Lord. So in many regards, hair that's long is hair that's untouched. Concerning trimming or cutting. Amen. The Illustrated Bible Dictionary states that women throughout biblical times wore their hair long and basically uncut. The Zondervan Pictorial Bible uh, Pictorial Dictionary states in biblical times, the length of hair was a mark of distinction again between the sexes. Have you not found that to be true? Sometimes in modern day world, you walk behind a few people that have the apparel both of what would be considered a man and haircuts of a man. And you tell me which one's the woman when one is. Oh, well, let's add in. You can't see the label of the brand of their pants. Amen. At a distance. I've sometimes mistakenly, even through checkouts, have said, thank you, sir. And it should have been a thank you, ma'am. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 16 one more time. It's a time-honored practice of the Hebrew people. And Paul finishes up. He's just spent about 13 verses talking about all this. And then he says, if any man be contentious, we have no, no such custom. Some people, this happened to me on the evangelist field. Some people say, well, if any man be contentious, then we don't, we don't have no custom. In other words, it don't matter. That is totally misinterpretation of Scripture. Matter of fact, let's read 1 Corinthians 11, verse 16. Is this the Amplified you got for me? Did you guys get it for me? Now, if anyone is disposed to be argumentative and contentious about this, we hold to and recognize no other custom in worship than this. Nor do the churches of God generally. In other words, Paul just spent 13 verses not just to get the end and say, you know what? If this upsets you, forget about it. I just spent 13 verses. Forget about it. No. He was basically conveying that if you don't agree with what has been taught, he says we don't have any other custom that's different from this. We don't have any other practice. This, this, is, this is the way that it has been for ages. This, this is that which has been ordered for ages. And so throughout history and civilized societies, uh, they accept that, Years ago, the long hair was, was, was the norm for women and short hair was the norm for guys. In the 1920s, of course, a revolution uh, came about. Uh, you know, it was the, the, yes, the roaring 20s. Things started to happen with, with women's hair. Uh, historical sources reveal, and I quote, historical resources, sources reveal that the new woman of the 1920s rejected the pieties of the older generations, smoked and drank in public, celebrated sexual revolution, embraced consumer culture. Magazines such as the Ladies' Home Journal and Pictorial Review presented readers with the debate, to bob or not to bob, speaking about the hair. 
The short sculpted hair of the bob marked a startling visual departure from the unswept and carefully dressed hair of the early 20th century Gibson girl. Dancer Irene Castle bobbed her hair and created a fashion sensation. During the 19 roaring 20s, History even tells us that hairdressers uh, begin to almost quadruple just in four years because ladies started to cut their hair. And so what happens is that's during around the time of World War One. All right. So right after World War One, everybody in society had endured the war, but it cost them a societal upheaval. Amen. We had won the war on foreign field, but lost the war at home. Amen. Furthermore, yes, the Roaring Twenties was the decade of the flapper. It's not a fish. <laughs> Should be. The flapper, also known as the New York woman. She cast off many of the manners and restrictions of her mother's generation, redefined the meaning of femininity. Her clothing was designed for comfort and freedom, and she enjoyed the fact that the older generation was shocked by the exposure of her arms and legs. Gone were petticoats and corsets. Gone were long, elaborate hairdos. Now the athletic tomboy look was in. Flappers also liked to behave boyishly. They smoked, they drank, they danced all night. Until the 1920s, women were expected to stay at home and care for their families. But the flappers rejected all that. They craved adventure, and in order to get what they wanted, they changed people's ideas about what a woman should be. Femininity would never quite be the same. And then for men in the angry decade and the rebellion of the 1960s, war, peace, love, smoke, weed, let's go to Woodstock. Generation, longer hair on men just came out of nowhere. And what was all of that about the anger decade? It was a time of rebellion. And so long hair on men came about in so much that one estimate said that barber shops closed at a rate of 100 a month because men... Stopped getting haircuts. Amen. And so we have these revolutions in America. But in these revolutions, if you would call them that, they are stepping away from biblical doctrine. They're stepping away from biblical doctrine. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 6. I'm heading there. I'll make it to an hour at least, maybe. And we'll be done, if that. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 6. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, Incontinent, in other words, without self-control, fierce, despisers of those things that are good, traitors, heady or stubborn, high-minded, proud, that is, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses, and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts. Paul tells Timothy, he says, from such like, he says, turn away. Just to go just a little further today, in this whole aspect of Christian living and holiness, then also anything that is intoxicating or damaging substance to our bodies, we need to steer clear from. Alcoholic beverages, and I, I don't have these up there. I'm just running through them. Proverbs 20 and verse 1. Wine, the Bible says, is a mocker, and strong drink is raging. And whosoever is dece deceived thereby is not wise. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And so he goes on to kind of give definition about the unrighteous. Be not deceived, neither fornicators in the list, nor drunkards shall inherit the kingdom of God. Folks, I don't want anything to do with that if it's going to chance my inheritance of the kingdom. Galatians 9, verses 9, 
5, rather, verses 19, verse 20 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Among the lists of the works of the flesh that are manifest is drunkenness, of which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, we don't want to fool around with anything that's going to prevent us from inheriting the kingdom of God. Substance abuse, drugs, tobacco, things of all this nature that may have negative effects upon your body. All right? That may cause an equivalence, if you will, of drunkenness, of a loss of self-control that may lead to sin or cause physical harm. Remember, we're to glorify God in our spirit and our body, which belongs into the Lord, the Bible says. Right? Especially when you become dependent upon it. it says, remember, the scripture says all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. He said, but that I might not be brought under the power of any. In other words, anything that comes into your life that has power over you, that it's the master you can't do without, you need to do without. If it becomes the master and you become the servant, then you need to dismiss it from your life. Amen. And, and, and that's a good rule with anything. All right? That's a good rule with things that may not be wrong according to the word of the Lord, but if it's wrong for you because now it's become your master, then you need to displace it. Amen. Second Corinthians seven and one, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. He says in first Corinthians three, verse 16 through 17, I alluded to this. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. Right. Because all this stuff is our sanctification process. We've received the spirit of the Lord. Right. We're to be holy because he is holy. He says, you're now the temple of God. The spirit of God dwelleth in you. But if any man defile the temple, right? Your body of God. Him shall God destroy for the temple of God is holy. Which temple ye are? Amen. Which temple we are? And so the scripture admonishes over and over in, in the word of the Lord. Again, follow peace with all men. Holiness without no man shall see God. It, it admonishes us to worship him in the beauty. And it is beautiful. The beauty of holiness so godliness, holiness, all these things, Christian living begins on the inside. It expresses itself on the outside. God makes us holy from the very beginning by salvation. We are to keep ourselves, maintain that holiness through our walk with the Lord. The Bible says, Matthew 5, you can stand with me in verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, there were some discrepancy things that were going on within Acts chapter number 5. Uh, society and this was saying you should do this, but they cried out, we ought to obey God rather than man because the lifestyle of christian living in holiness it goes beyond regulations it goes beyond restrictions it goes beyond rules and guidelines prohibitions again if you use those type of words to describe it you got the wrong viewpoint right away because it's protection it's a means of joyfully serving the lord pleasing our bridegroom to be And so perfecting holiness is a journey in attitude and apparel and adornment in speech. It is a journey. So don't be disheartened. Don't be discouraged. All right. Because your flesh, your carnal nature is going to rebel against it. Want, there's enmity between the flesh and the spirit. There is that constant war. It's going to rebel against it. But remember, that it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. If you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, that spirit is in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we have all of these sanctification things that are helping us to be saved from the power of sin. Now, here's the thing, folks. Here's where we get into real, real trouble. Is that if God gives instruction concerning his word to it, and then we are disobedient to an absolute spoken thing in his word. Then we've entered to a different realm of disobedience. And we don't want to be disobedient to the Lord. All right. Amen. Amen. I finished. One year. I had a Sunday to spare, but an evangelist was going to be here. One year. We have been in a discipleship series in the past however many weeks just on Christian living. And the purpose, hope you, again, I, I said last week, it's unfair to take any single one of these outside of the scope of the whole picture because we have brought you from not knowing the Lord 
through regeneration and filling the spirit, taking on his name, maturity through the gifts of the spirit, the fruits of the spirit, all these things to this final big point of sanctification of this journey we're on. And what is all that for, Brother McGee? That purpose is for someday being saved from the presence of sin, either through death or through being raptured and going home someday. Amen. Amen. So if you're watching this again, I'm telling you, please do not take offense to what was spoken here today. Take this in the context of everything that's been spoken from January until now. Because I think a deeper appreciation comes. It's not as though I'm, I'm doing all this sanctification thing and I, I you know, what about me? <laughs> I was filled with his spirit. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. The same spirit that will raise us from the dead. Woo! This is my ticket home. It's my ticket home. I don't have ruby slippers and I'm not putting them. To, this is my ticket home. Hallelujah. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, I come to you today. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.